You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Dragonfly 2.0 is up to some very bad things in several nations' power grids. China ramps up cyber espionage against South China Sea rivals. Facebook finds that a Russian front company bought more than $100,000 in influence op ads on its service over the last two years. U.S. info ops stumble over a dog. And a Japanese 13-year-old is in hot water for trying to sell malware. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 7, 2017. The warnings about Dragonfly, sounded this week by Symantec, continue to reverberate. It amounts, observers say, to a sabotage warning, since the threat actor is believed to have established access to operational networks controlling the power grid. The U.S., Switzerland, and Turkey are said to be particularly heavily infested. A nation-state is said to be behind Dragonfly, which nation-state hasn't yet been publicly identified. Dragonfly's been seen before, starting in 2014, as we're reminded by Moreno Carullo of Nozomi Networks. He commented to us that the earlier wave of Dragonfly heavily targeted pharmaceutical firms. He said, quote, Dragonfly 2.0 appears to have been weaponized to specifically target industrial control systems field devices, and then feeds that information back to the command and control server, which will be monitored by the attackers. He notes that Dragonfly 2.0 is patient. He said, quote, Rather than installing an infection immediately, this latest iteration of Dragonfly bides its time, waiting 11 days before automatically installing a backdoor. Using this new entrance, the attacker can then install or download applications to infected computers, particularly targeting Windows XP with known vulnerabilities and even circumventing permission restrictions on user accounts. End quote. Carullo says that research by Nozomi supports the conclusion that Dragonfly 2.0 is exploring ICS works in depth and that such knowledge could readily be used to disrupt operational networks. Representatives of the electrical power industry at the Intelligence and National Security Summit made the familiar point that there are no easy solutions to this threat. It's an aspect of risk that must be known and managed. Those we heard speaking made two points. First, when the power industry talks about intelligence, they're talking about the intelligence they themselves develop. They're not waiting to be fed by government, although they welcome cooperation with and assistance from government. Second, they reject the notion that security should be something that affords a company a competitive advantage, and they advocate sharing intelligence with the sector as much as possible. Votiro, Fortinet, and FireEye re-emphasize findings that groups associated with Chinese intelligence services are working actively against countries with whom China is disputing territorial claims in the South China Sea, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, especially Vietnam. 
Facebook says that over the last two years, between $100,000 and $150,000 in some 3,000 Facebook ads were placed by the Internet Research Agency, a St. Petersburg outfit known to operate on behalf of the Russian security and intelligence organs. The topics the ads addressed were characterized as divisive, concentrating on race, immigration, equal rights, and so on. $150,000 is not much in terms of advertising dollars. If it was a Russian ad buy aimed at disruption, then Moscow achieved a spectacular return on its investment. Some, like Virginia Senator Warner, who addressed this news at the Intelligence and National Security Summit this morning, are calling this the tip of the iceberg. The ads were fairly well distributed across the political spectrum, not apparently pushing any consistent viewpoint, but rather they were evidently placed to exacerbate the worst tendencies of those who might read them. The U.S. continues its minor stumbles over information operations. Anti-Taliban leaflets dropped in Afghanistan alienated their target audience by carelessly juxtaposing the Taliban flag with a Quranic verse and a dog, a ritually unclean animal. An international panel of counterterrorism experts at the Intelligence and National Security Summit discussed information operations by both state and non-state actors. In response to a question about developing technology that could monitor social media, they replied that the technology was already here, right in front of us. It's Facebook, Google, and Twitter. They know the content that's transiting their networks. What they, or a government, might do with that knowledge, however, remains an open and contentious question. By now, we're all familiar with the phrase fake news and the variety of ways it gets invoked. The folks at Domain Tools wanted to get a snapshot of how cybersecurity professionals perceive fake news, so they conducted a survey this year at Black Hat. Kyle Wilhoyt is a senior security researcher at Domain Tools. How does the fake news issue get solved? Realistically, from a majority of the respondents from the actual survey had gone out and said that realistically this falls back on social media sites themselves, meaning the Twitters of the world, the Facebooks of the world, they're the ones that actually would need to go out and, and write algorithms and figure out ways to help filter out some of this fake news. So that was one of the more interesting questions that we were asking kind of surrounding this. And additionally, we had asked um, if the government needs to intervene um, and help to shut down these actual sites. And a majority of the respondents also um, had answered that the government does in fact need to intervene and shut down those actual websites. So a couple interesting data points there, um, just kind of gauging, you know, again, what cybersecurity professionals are, are kind of feeling and what they view and how they view um, fake news in general. So interesting. I didn't really expect it to, to kind of come out that way. There's some other interesting um, results from the survey. You had uh, a significant percentage of people thought that cyber war is the current state of warfare. Explain that to us. Yeah. So realistically, whenever we're asking kind of around the current state of, of cyber warfare, et cetera, um, we asked a specific question, um, essentially asking, is there specific reasons that you might view the United States, for instance, as being targeted, et cetera? And many respondents were saying that the U.S. realistically had the most to lose, meaning from a, an intellectual property standpoint, it makes um, a very attractive target. Now, we're not necessarily downplaying other nations or other good information or other proprietary information that other nation states are generating. What the respondents seem to think is that you know the U.S. realistically had the most to lose and that ultimately made them one of the more um, attractive targets. And then we also asked um, specifically, 
um, about kind of where we think or where do you specifically think um, that attacks will actually happen. And a majority of individuals in the actual survey had said that electricity generation systems were going to be more than likely going to be one of the first assets to fall victim to an attack. And then closely following that was telecommunication systems. Was there any sense from the survey as to whether people think that things are getting better or worse in terms of our ability to protect against those types of attacks? Yeah, so they're really we we didn't go into great detail as far as how they feel um, from a protection standpoint or how they feel um, you know if they feel that everything is good, but ultimately what it boils down to is that a majority of the individuals, meaning sixty three percent of the people, had mentioned that. The cybersecurity architecture or the lack of uh, robust cybersecurity architecture is one of the main driving forces um, that could cause one of those breaches, which, again, I think is a pretty accurate um, assessment, a pretty accurate um, realization as to what's happening in the world. Also, ultimately, what was also interesting um, was the simple fact that some of the biggest factors, you know, from a policy perspective is the fact that many people think that inadequate policy is actually second or third in place behind inadequate security architecture. So most respondents to the survey had gone out and said, hey, we think that the security architecture is bad, but other respondents, meaning the second place, was inadequate policy. So other individuals are also realizing that there's policy gaps, that there's policy issues, et cetera, that I think is also accurate. That's Kyle Wilhoit from Domain Tools. Google's September Android Security Bulletin addressed 81 bugs, 13 of them critical remote code execution vulnerabilities. In other industry news, Webroot is welcoming a new CEO. Mike Potts will take over for Dick Williams, who's retiring after leading the Colorado-based cyber company through 14 consecutive quarters of growth. Best wishes to Mr. Potts and congratulations to Mr. Williams. Enjoy your retirement. Finally, we're all for teaching kids to code, but kids, sometimes, you go too far. Witness the 13-year-old Japanese boy who's come to the attention of the Nara Prefectural Police. The youngster was busy looking for a dark web market in which he could hawk malware he'd written. Boy, boy, these wild ways of yours will break your mother's heart. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Uh, Jonathan, we're going to get back to some basics today, and we want to talk about uh, bit depth when it comes to encryption. Give us an overview. How does bit depth affect things? Well, the strength of the key or the strength of the encryption that's being used is directly related to the length of the key. Uh, That's at least the case for uh, symmetric key algorithms like we're talking about here. And uh, essentially, if your encryption algorithm is good enough, then the only way to break it is to do a brute force search or an enumeration of all possible keys that can be used. So if you have, let's say, a a 4-bit key, that means you have 2 to the 4 or 16 different possibilities, which isn't uh, very much. If you have a 256-bit key, then the number of possibilities for the key is 2 to the 256, which is an astronomically large number. And essentially what that means is that every bit you add on to the key is going to double the difficulty of doing a brute force search for the key. So as computing power increases, is is it inevitable that today's uncrackable encryption will be crackable in the future? Well, that's a great question. Uh, And it turns out, actually, that you can do the calculation and you can see exactly how long it might take to do a brute force search over keys of a particular length. And, uh, for example, if you imagine that you have a computer that's capable of uh, checking a key uh, once every computer cycle, and it's been running, say, I don't know, since the beginning of the universe, uh, then it turns out if you do the calculation, you get that you can search through a 96-bit key space. So it looks pretty, pretty safe that, to say that uh, we're not going to be cracking keys that long anytime soon. And, in fact, you can even use the laws of physics to get an upper bound on how many keys you could potentially search through. Uh, there's a calculation online somewhere where if you even extract all the energy coming out of the sun and, uh, and do this uh, brute force searching over the time scale of the universe, you can search through about uh, keys of length 187 bits. So 256-bit keys look pretty safe until we start computing with things uh, other than matter and energy. All right, so we're safe for the time being, uh, but uh, why use a key that complex? Are, are, is, there a, is there a computational penalty for using a key that's that complex? Right, well, well so what, everything I was talking about so far assumes that the best way to attack the system is a brute force search over the entire space of possible keys. And so from that point of view, a 256-bit key would protect you forever. Uh, the concern that people have, of course, is that the encryption algorithm may not be perfect. Somebody five or ten years from now may come up with a method to break the encryption scheme that's slightly faster than a brute force search. And so you want protection even in the event that people are able to kind of uh, shave a few bits off the effective strength of the key. Uh, People are also concerned about the possibility of quantum computers that might be able to speed up the attack. It's still, uh, the jury's still out over whether that's uh, actually possible in practice. But the theory says that um, on a quantum computer, you can cut the effective key strength in half. So from that point of view, a 256-bit key would have only the strength of a 128-bit key against a quantum computer. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. 
say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With Identity Orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. <laughs>